Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and church history, Brother Kay Godfrey. This begins a new series, The Silver-Lined Clouds of War, Part 1, 1838. Welcome. It's good to have you back with us today. Our podcast is going to be um, a little different, perhaps, than what we've done in um, in the past. It's going to be a little more interactive. I'm going to have you do a couple of things. Uh, you're going to find our podcast today is going to be a little dysfunctional, a little a little fragmented. We're going to bounce around from place to place as we go through the year of 1838. I'm going to try my best to keep you kind of focused on the twists and turns and all that goes into this particular year, but it is going to be a little complicated, so just a, a word to the wise. Also, we're going to be introducing to you a number of new individuals that we haven't talked about so far up through this point in time. Um, you might want to take a piece of paper and put maybe a title at the top, the good, the bad, maybe the ugly, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as we go down through these individuals' names and what they do and how they interact with our story, you can put them in a category here. It might help you just a little bit to understand the direction we're going with these things. So with those thoughts in mind, we will begin our podcast today, part one of the Silver-Lined Clouds of War, and the year again is 1838. As Joseph approached far west, uh, which would be the new headquarters of the church, he sadly contemplated all that he was leaving behind. Curlin had been his home for the past seven years, and he wasn't leaving willingly, nor was he leaving on his own accord. The hostilities in Kirtland had escalated to the point of, quote, fleeing for fear of death. As such, on January 12, 1838, Joseph left Kirtland. He left its temple and everything he had grown to love. Joseph's family and that of Sidney Rigdon traveled together as far as Dublin, Indiana, where they separated for safety's sake. They planned on reuniting at Far West in March. So, with his six-month pregnant wife, Emma, by his side, and his daughter, Julia, and son, Joseph Smith III, they pressed forward through the cold winter months, hoping for better days in Far West. As the uh, family approached the Illinois River, and much to Joseph's surprise and delight, they were met by a group of excited, enthusiastic saints from Far West who had traveled 175 miles to greet the prophet. On March 14, 1838, Joseph entered far west to the throngs of thousands of cheering saints, heralding him the return of the conquering hero. Upon his arrival in far west, Joseph's family boarded at the home of George and Lucinda Harris. Their stay there would be two months, while a one-story frame home was being built about a quarter of a mile southwest from where the far west temple site would be located. In the following months, other friends arrived and built their homes nearby. Some saints, like Lyman White, went into the nearby sparsely populated Buffer County of Davies and settled under a gentleman's agreement with the local Gentile inhabitants. Now, there were many pressing matters that needed the prophet's attention at this time. On April 6, 1838, the church held a conference to commemorate the 8th anniversary of the organization of the church. The conference was held at a schoolhouse near the center of town. 
The tone of the conference was dampened, however, with the removal of so many church leaders who had apostatized. The entire Far West State Presidency was replaced. Thomas B. Marsh was called as president, with David W. Patton and Brigham Young as counselors. They replaced the fallen David Whitmer, who was cut off from the church for neglecting his duties and failure to live the word of wisdom and John Whitmer and W. W. Phelps for defrauding the church's finances. John Carell and Elias Higby were called as church historians to replace John Whitmer. George W. Robinson was called as the general church recorder and clerk for the first presidency, and he replaced Warren Parrish, who, as you remember, had apostatized earlier in Kirtland. Other prominent men such as Lyman E. Johnson and William E. McClellan of the Quorum of Twelve and Oliver Cowdery of the First Presidency were removed and excommunicated from the church. Now with regards to Oliver Cowdery, on April 12, 1838, Oliver was charged with filing, quote, intolerable, offensive, and irritating lawsuits against the church leaders, selling lands in Jackson County, and leaving his calling as assistant president of the church. Hiram Smith was appointed in his stead. But to Oliver's credit, ten years after leaving the church, he decided to return and follow the saints to Utah. He traveled as far as the little town of Canesville, Iowa, where a small branch of the church met. He asked permission to speak to the congregation and confessed his wrongdoings. He was rebaptized in October of 1848 in Canesville and traveled on. He stopped in Richmond, Missouri to visit his brother-in-law, David Whitmer. While visiting David, he became seriously ill and died soon after. He's buried in the Pioneer Cemetery in Richmond, Missouri. Now, the weeding out process has certainly taken a toll on the leadership of the young church. On April 26, 1838, Joseph received a significant revelation from the Lord, Doctrine and Covenants, section 115. In it, the Lord actually named the church formally. It had previously been known as the Church of Christ, the Church of Latter-day Saints, and the Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joseph was told, quote, For thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was also commanded to dedicate a site for a temple in Far West. The dedication was to be held on the upcoming July 4th and its foundation was to be laid a year from this revelation, which would be April 26, 1839. With these wonderful events to transpire, Joseph felt the need to have the history of the church written down. The assignment had previously been given to John Whitmer, but upon his excommunication, he refused to part with the record that he had kept. And so on April 27th, Joseph started the arduous task of recording the church's history. In May of 1838, the prophet headed up an expedition to search out additional land that might be used for settlements for the saints. On May 18th, Joseph, Sidney Rigdon, and George W. Robinson left far west traveling north 18 miles to the home of Lyman White near the Grand River in Davies County. Lyman had established a ferry called White's Ferry on the Grand River about one half of a mile from his home. Lyman's home was at the base of a large hill on which was discovered the ruins of a Nephite altar. 
Joseph called the hill Tower Hill. It was at the right settlement that Joseph was directed to lay out a city north and west of Tower Hill for the saints. The town was to be two square miles across with the town square at the top of an adjacent hill. The city would accommodate 600 inhabitants. This hill was known as Spring Hill, but by revelation the name was changed to Adamon Diamond or Diamond for short. The word translates to from Adam to mankind through the Lord. In 1835, the Lord revealed that three years prior to Adam's death, he gathered together all the patriarchs and gave them his final blessing. Even as he was blessing them, the heavens opened and the Lord appeared. Joseph prophesied that in this valley, quote, the ancient of days, Adam, will come again. Then the books will be opened and the judgment shall sit. The Son of Man will appear and issue a decree that his dominion shall be everlasting. Well, by the fall, there were more than 200 huts or wagon homes built in Diamond. However, Diamond's real future is yet to be written. You know, there's so much more I'd like to share with you about Adam on Diamond. Perhaps as we conclude the silver lined clouds of war, um, I might come back to this particular subject and do a, a special podcast on Adam on Diamond and its unique past and future. And maybe this is as good a point as any to point out a couple of things that I brought with me here today. First of all, I have a stone here. It's actually a portion of a brick that I acquired in 2002. Now, while the saints were in Diamond, or Adam on Diamond, there on Spring Hill, there was only one permanent building built. It was a bishop's storehouse built of brick. Well, I, I have a a small portion of a, of a brick here. There were other brick structures built after the saints left Diamond, but to me it's kind of a, a, a special stone. And then this topo map I kind of wanted to point out to you. Um, down here at the bottom, this cluster of gray represents the town of Gallatin. That's the nearest town uh, to Adam on Diamond and you would leave Gallatin and go over here to Highway 13 and then you follow 13. 13 goes all the way up to Jameson which is right up here at the top right there Jameson. About halfway up Highway 13 you'd cut over near where the Grand River is and you can see the river and the portion of properties that we're talking about here of Adam on Diamond is this dog leg area right through here. This is all Grand River floodplain area here and it's incredible. Um, crops are grown there, variety of crops are grown there e each year and it's just very fertile. But the hills we're talking about are Tower Hill here and Spring Hill over here. So it's this area right here where my hand is that is referred to as Adam on Diamond, or Diamond for short. And um, this would be a really interesting podcast to talk a little more in depth about all of this. And perhaps Michael allow me to do so when we conclude our Silver Line Clouds of War. Well, the prophet returned home to Emma, and on June 2nd, 1838, she gave birth to a son. Joseph named the son Alexander Hale Smith after Alexander Donovan, the attorney and friend of the saints. Um, just a little side note on Alexander Hale Smith. 
He would marry in 1861 a young lady named Miss Elizabeth Kendall. She was a native of, of England. And Alexander would eventually join the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, by 1862, he was serving missions for that church. And quite honestly, those missions involved coming to Salt Lake City and trying to talk to the um, confused Brighamites. By 1873, he was an apostle in the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ. So he has kind of an interesting future ahead of him that's quite different than I think his father would have, would have wanted. On June 16, 1838, John Smith, that's Joseph's uncle, and six other families arrived in Far West. Joseph directed the company not to unpack, because they're going to settle in Diamond. At a conference held in Diamond on June 28th, John Smith was set apart as president of the Diamond Stake with Reynolds Cahoon and Lyman White as his counselors. The Diamond Stake would eventually be the gathering place for another large group or company of saints. We call them the Kirtland Camp, and they're going to arrive later in October. Meanwhile, trouble was brewing on the horizon. On June 19th, Sidney Rigdon preached what is referred to as the salt sermon. Its text being taken from Matthew chapter 5 verses 13, aimed at casting out the dissenters from amongst the saints. It seems that many of those that were cut off from the church still made their homes in far west. An unauthorized letter suddenly appeared signed by 84 members of the church telling the dissenters to leave the city or face serious consequences. Many fled for fear of persecution, and these exiled apostates would continue to wreak havoc with the saints. The first signature on this hate mail was that of a man named Samson Averd. It'll be seen later the destructive nature of this self-righteous insurgent who with his flattering ways created a secret combination known as the Danites or the Daughters of Zion. The church had not seen the last of its traitors. Let me just read this slide. It says, Samson Avard would testify that Joseph was the source of this secret combination group bent on driving all non-Mormons out of Caldwell County. Avard was ex excommunicated from the church on March 17, 1839. We'll be talking about him quite a bit here in the near future. On June 23rd, Joseph authorized the purchase of property along the Missouri River in the town, a little town called DeWitt. The purpose was to establish a ferry to assist the saints crossing the Missouri River en route to far west. We're going to introduce to you a new man now, George M. Hinkle. George Hinkle and John Murdoch paid Henry Root $500 for the riverfront property. Once the locals learned of the sale, they started their systematic efforts to persecute the saints in DeWitt. On July 3rd, mobs from Ray, Howard, and Clay counties held three separate meetings in an effort to unite against the Mormon invaders. The mob's wrath would climax in October after 70 families had settled in DeWitt. 
The summer of 1838 saw a steady stream of immigrants uh, pouring into the uh, far west. The population approached 5,000. The Saints had purchased more than 250,000 acres of ground at a cost of $318,000. Far West consisted of 2,000 homes, four dry goods stores, three family grocery stores, several blacksmith shops, two hotels, one print shop, and a school that doubled as a church and a courthouse. Now, there was no liquor, tea, coffee, or tobacco sold in the city limits. The words of Sarah de Armand P. Rich, wife of Charles C. Rich, typify the feelings of the immigrants coming to Far West. Quote, As Far West was a place everybody lived in a log house, so my husband had built a nice little hewn log house and got it ready to live in by the time we were married. It was seven miles from Far West, near my husband's father's, so I felt so I left my father's house in Far West, and we moved to our cozy and happy home, and we thought we were the happiest couple in all the land, our religion being first with us in all things. Now, just a thought about this slide. Um, this is all that remains of Far West. 5,000 people, 2,000 homes. Where's the evidence of the saints ever having been in Far West? It's gone. Not a stone on a stone remains. This structure was found by the Missouri Mormon Frontier Foundation, of which I'm proud to be a part of, as we looked beyond Far West for evidence of the saints being there. And seven miles away, near the little town of Mirabelle, this structure was found. Now, the research is now, I think, pretty well proven beyond a doubt that it was, in fact, Charles C. Rich's home. So that's it. That's all that, that, that's there. The thing is held up at the time of this picture by trampoline springs and, and guide wires. Otherwise, it would be, it would be down today. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's sad to contemplate that there's no evidence at all other than this of the saints ever having been in Far West. July was a busy month for the prophet. It began on the 4th with the laying of the cornerstone for the Far West Temple, agreeable to the commandments received on July 26th. The four cornerstones were laid by the priesthood, with Sidney Rigdon delivering the oration. Well, again, as in June's salt sermon, uh, Sidney gave, on this 4th of July, a fiery Independence Day speech, declaring that, quote, mobs coming against the Mormons would be punished, and that mob that comes on us to disturb us, it shall be between us and them a war of extermination. Well, unfortunately, copies of this speech conveniently made their way into the hands of the mob. Eventually, the speech would be used as grounds for filing charges of treason against the saints. With the saints whipped into a self-righteous stupor um, by Sidney Rigdon and other church leaders, the cunning and deceitful Samson Avard enters the scene. Samson was a doctor in the militia organized at Far West. The Far West militia was sometimes referred to as the armies of Israel or the Danites, a phrase taken from the book of Daniel. The prophet had used the phrase during Zion's Camp March in 1834. Now, Avard pictured himself as much more than a mere medic. He envisioned himself as the new chosen leader of the saints. And slowly, by his smooth, flattering speeches, he organized an inner group of men within the public Danites. 
He also referred to his followers as Danites. However, his Danites were likened to the warrior tribe of Dan or the militant references to the daughters of Zion. Now, the public Danites worked in groups serving the interests of the whole. They were charged with caring for the sick, gathering food, building homes, and basically doing good. Now, the secret combination Danites of Avard met in secret under guard with oaths of death, always keeping watch for the approach of anyone who would not approve of their actions. In these proceedings, Avard stated that he had the sanction of the heads of the church for what they were about to do. Well, Joseph knew of Advert's zeal for independence, but he never was aware of his underbelly of deceit. Avard organized his followers into groups, and they were charged with, quote, going out into the borders of the Gentiles and taking for themselves of the goods of the ungodly. Well, eventually, many of the Advert loyalists and recruits were open to this man's treachery, exposing him for the man he really was. Now, one of those was Lorenzo Young, who, after a recruiting session, reported the matter to his brother Brigham Young, who in turn informed the prophet. <clears throat> Samson Advert was then cut off from the church, and every means possible was used to destroy his influence. Unfortunately, Advert's band had done its job well and given the mob fodder for their cause. During September and October, the Danites were blamed with burning and plundering homes, driving off livestock, and terrorizing the local citizenry. Even after the disbandment of Advert's Danites, Avard would make his evil presence felt one last time. On November 13th, Avard would be the first to testify against the prophet in the Richmond trial. Parley P. Pratt made this statement in July of 1838. Quote, War clouds began to lower over the saints. And with all that was happening, Joseph could only hope that they were silver-lined clouds of war. As Joseph assisted the relocation efforts of the arriving saints, a large body of Kirtland faithful left their homes. On July 5th, 175 70s and their families, totaling 515 saints, 59 wagons, and the aged parents of Joseph Smith left for Far West. The Kirtland Camp is sometimes referred to as the 70s Camp. So Kirtland and 70s Camps were talking the same thing. After much travail, the camp would enter Far West on October the 4th, with only 260 of the original members that left. President John Smith had been appointed to be their priesthood leader at Diamond. On July 8th, the prophet received two important revelations, Doctrine and Covenant section 118 calling John Taylor, a bold convert from Canada, John E. Page, a missionary in Canada with more than 600 converts to his credit, Wilford Woodruff, who was serving a mission at the time in the islands of Maine, and Willard Richards, an English convert, all were called to the apostleship. However, because of their assignments, none of the men were available at the time to be ordained. That would have to come later. They're going to replace the fallen John Boynton, Luke Johnson, Lyman Johnson, and William E. McClellan. The revelation also stated that, quote, The next spring let the twelve depart to go over the great waters. Let them take leave of my saints in the city of Far West on the twenty-sixth day of April next, on the building spot of my house, saith the Lord. 
well, later, we're going to find out that to fulfill this particular prophecy is going to require a great amount of courage and integrity. Now, the second revelation on July the 8th, Doctrine and Covenants 119, is commonly referred to as the Law of Tithing. The Lord had previously given the Law of Consecration, but it was withdrawn because of failure to observe it. The Lord defined tithing as one-tenth and made it binding for the whole church. Let me read this slide, or portions of this particular um, section. And this shall be the beginning of the tithing of my people. And after that, those who have thus been tithed shall pay one-tenth of all of their interest annually. And this shall be a standing law unto them forever for my holy priesthood, saith the Lord. Verily I say unto you, it shall come to pass that all those who gather unto the land of Zion shall be tithed of their surplus properties and shall observe the law, or they shall not be found worthy to abide among you. And I say unto you, if my people observe not this law, to keep it holy, and by this law sanctify the land of Zion unto me, that my statutes and judgments may be kept thereon, that it may be a most holy, Behold, verily I say unto you, it shall not be a land of Zion unto you. And this shall be an example unto all the stakes of Zion, even so. Amen. On August the 6th, Sidney Rigdon was appointed postmaster and editor for a newspaper in Far West. He replaced the fallen W.W. W. Phelps. On this date, the first serious conflict between the saints and the mobs happened at an election in Gallatin, Davies County. Judge Joseph Morin, a friend of the saints, had warned of a possible incident at the polls on election day. And so... I want to emphasize this date of August the 6th, 1838. This is when it all started. Everything we've been talking about with the Danites and this guerrilla warfare of sorts um, had not really opened into uh, rebellion and, and fighting and war and shooting at one another yet. But that's all going to change as of this particular election in Gallatin, which is in Davies County, again, the buffer county, Caldwell given to the saints. Davies kind of a buffer county, and it's going to happen in this buffer county that we're going to have uh, the first interaction between the, the saints and the mob. So let's tell you that story. William Penniston was running against a guy named John A. Williams. Penniston, an original settler in the Gallatin area, was running on a platform of driving the saints from the area. And remember, this is an election, and so the saints living in, the, in Davies County are at the election polls. At 11 o'clock in the morning, he stood up and gave an inflammatory speech against the Mormons. He so enraged the, the assembled crowd that a guy named Dick Welding, and he's the mob's bully, pushed one of the saints to the ground, and a violent fight broke out. The saints were outnumbered 10 to 1. However, the small band of 12 fought back with the ferocity of lions. Brother John Butler grabbed a nearby oak stake and sent numerous mobsters flying through the air. Well, in fear of the saints' newfound courage, the mob fled in terror, vowing to return with guns. Now, I want to 
I want to refer to this slide, and for those of you that are audibly listening to this podcast and don't have the the slide in front of you, it reads, Gallatin was the site of the first major conflict between the saints and the mob. Over the next three months, many serious skirmishes would occur, leaving many dead and the Prophet Joseph behind bars in Liberty Jail. But what I want to emphasize on this slide is this picture of this plaque that is right out in front, standing right out in front of the courthouse in Gallatin. And it's really unique what it says, and I'm going to read it. It says, Missouri, Gallatin. The Grand River town platted in 1837 as the seat of Davies County is named in honor of Albert Gallatin, Secretary of the Treasury, 1801 through 1813. Settlers were in the area as early as 1830, and in 1836 the county was formed. And then this part I find very unique. Adam on Diamond, five miles northwest, was settled by the Mormons on direction of the prophet Joseph Smith in 1838. The name is said to mean Adam's consecrated land. For here, according to Smith, Adam blessed all of the patriarchs before his death. At this place, also known as Adam's grave, Smith announced the discovery of the altar on a nearby hill where he said, These ancients worshipped. Hostilities broke out between the Mormons and the anti-Mormons, and a sharp skirmish took place in Gallatin. In 1839, when the Mormons were expelled from Missouri, Adam on Diamond was abandoned. I find this discussion about Adam and, and the patriarchs of Adam's time being put into this metal plaque in Gallatin to be very unique. Very unique. All right, let's move on. Well, exaggerated reports flew rampant relative to this election brawl. One claimed that two of the brethren had been killed by the mob. Another claimed Joseph Smith had killed seven at Gallatin. The report that two of the brethren had been killed reached far west. The First Presidency and 20 others left immediately for Davies County on August the 8th. They arrived that evening at Lyman White's home in Diamond. They were greeted then with the factual report that no one was killed. Well, the prophet decided to attempt to turn the tide of bitterness by writing about the area in an effort to try and calm the public. They visited the local newly elected judge, Adam Black, at his home and asked him to put into writing a commitment to judge fairly and disassociate himself from the mob. And this he did. Well, the next day, the Mormons and non-Mormons alike met and entered into a covenant of peace. Justice was also served that day, as William Penniston, the guy who started the election brawl, lost the election. This slide shows you the proximity of some of these places. Um, Diamond, we're talking a lot about at the top. You can see how close that is to where Gallatin Brawl took place. And then far west, you can see the distance, perhaps, that Joseph would have to ride to and from if he was going to visit Lyman White at Adam on Diamond. Now, we haven't talked about Hans Mill, but it's not far from far west, and we're just about ready to start to talk about DeWitt. And you can see it down on the Missouri River towards the bottom. So this slide's kind of important for you to get a perspective of how pretty close these places are to one another. Well, the Saints' effort to... Uh, have this lasting peace that they wrote up lasted all of one day, one day.
On August 10th, Penniston presented to Judge Austin King in Richmond an affidavit accusing Joseph and Lyman White of threatening all of the old settlers in the area with death. And this judge, Judge Adam Black, also claimed he was threatened by 154 Mormons who forced him to sign an agreement with them. Well, so much for peace. Now, September became an extremely volatile time for the church. The inhabitants of many of the adjoining counties began to band together to drive the saints from their midst. Armed bands roamed the countryside looking for opportunities to harass the saints. With mob tension increasing daily and the need for a better understanding of civil law, Joseph asked his two friends, Major General David Atchison and Brigadier General Alexander Donovan, what can we do? What can be done? Well, both of these men, of course, were attorneys and had defended the church position in the past. And they told Joseph that it might calm the fears of the general masses if he and Lyman White would subject themselves to be tried at the small hamlet of Seth on these trumped-up charges filed by both Penniston and Black. Well, Joseph and Lyman gladly agreed to do this. However, on September the 7th, Judge Austin King ordered them to stand trial in the circuit court and release them on a $500 bail. Now, this did not stop the mob violence. Rumors surfaced about a mob attack at Adam on Diamond and Millport. Now, Millport is a little town that's very close to, to Adam on Diamond, a town that is occupied by the saints. And the saints' worst fears were proven true as they intercepted a wagon load of guns headed to the mob in Davies County. So with tensions running high, General Hiram G. Parks, this is a new name, Hiram G. Park of the Missouri Militia instructed Lyman White, who held a colonel's commission in the Missouri Regiment, to direct 150 men to protect the town of Diamond. Lyman's small band were fearless, and they became known as the Diamond Boys. By September 15th, a Texas standoff ensued. If it had not been for the clear-thinking Alexander Donovan and his forces, I'm sure violence surely would have erupted. Donovan, who was a brigadier general in the Missouri militia, marched his forces through the middle of both camps and demanded them disperse. On September 26, the Mormon committee, hoping to fuse the time bomb, met with a representative group from the mob and offered to purchase the lands of those that may want to sell. Meanwhile, crazed reports about the Mormons were making their way to the governor's office in Jefferson City. With the situation in Adam on Diamond being monitored now by General Parks and Donovan, the mob moved its center of operation to a more unsecure area, the town of DeWitt in Carroll County. By September 20th, the saints in DeWitt were being threatened with death if they did not leave. The obvious retort was a petition to the governor for protection from these lawless mobs. On September 22nd, the church obtained affidavits from sympathetic non-Mormons in the area and appealed to the governor for help. His response, as expected, was, and I quote, the quarrel was between the Mormons and the mob, and that the Mormons might fight it out. On September 28th, the DeWitt Saints received with joy Elder Johnny Page and his company from Canada, this is where he'd been proselyting, and his saints and converts were accompanying him to far west. Unfortunately, Elder Page stopped at a very inopportune time. 
By the 1st of October, men from 11 counties had gathered to fight the Mormons at DeWitt. During this time, refugees continued to pour into Far West. On October 4th, the Kirtland camp finally made it. They had finally arrived at their destination at Adamondiamond. Their tedious long journey had now come to an end. Little did this weary band of saints know, however, that within six months they would be journeying back again the same direction they had come. Meanwhile, at DeWitt, the mob notified Colonel Hinkle, who was the leader of the saints at DeWitt, that unless the saints left, they would be attacked. Colonel Hinkle was a defiant man, and he threatened extermination to those who should attempt to disturb the peace of the saints. On October the 4th, the mob forces had grown to 450 men, and an exchange of scattered volleys could be heard throughout the area. On October 6th, Joseph secretly entered DeWitt to appraise the situation. He found the handful of saints surrounded in every direction. Their provisions were nearly depleted with no prospect of receiving any supplies. They were slowly, systematically being starved to death. The mob continued to receive recruits daily as well as arms and a cannon. Their intent was to blast the saints from their camp. General Parks was called from Davies County to DeWitt to be put in command of the militia. However, most of his forces mutinied and joined with the lawless mob, leaving him helpless to render any assistance. While in DeWitt, Joseph actually witnessed some of the brethren perish from starvation. Quote, I had the pain of beholding some of my fellow creatures fall victims to the spirit of persecution. They were good, virtuous men who, in consequence of their love of God, were brought to an untimely grave. Well, after considering the extreme danger that the saints were in, Colonel Hinkle, the defiant and pompous man, reached an agreement with an arbitration committee just prior to a scheduled attack. Let me read to you from this particular slide. It says, Hinkle and it's a quote from him, the saints should defend their right to remain in DeWitt. DeWitt, Carroll County, Missouri Siege. Not very many Mormons had been welcomed when they began arriving in June of 1838, and by July, the Latter-day Saints outnumbered the residents of DeWitt. Three separate meetings were held by the DeWitt townsfolks to unify the citizens and expel the Mormons. George M. Hinkle, leader of the Saints and colonel in the Missouri State Militia, declared that the Saints should defend their right to remain in DeWitt. And then late in September 1838, the Saints at DeWitt sent a letter to Governor Lalburn W. Boggs asking for assistance in defending themselves against a lawless mob. Uh, they received no response. Interesting. Well, after this arbitration was took place, the saints were allowed free passage, and they were told that their lands would be purchased at a fair price if they left immediately. On October the 11th, without any prospect of relief, the saints loaded their wagons and without delay filed out of town in a long procession for the refuge city of Far West. The saints never did receive any compensation for their properties at DeWitt. No sooner had the saints left DeWitt than the mob headed for Davies County. And you can see on this slide the map, DeWitt, and the red arrow taking you up to Davis, Davies County, basically following the Grand River.
With one victory under the belt and a cannon in tow, and now 800 recruits, the mob was determined to drive the saints from Adam on Diamond. With war looming on the horizon, Colonel Lyman White of Diamond was authorized by General Parks to raise a company of men and disperse the mob wherever he should find them collected together. Colonel Hinkle, now in Far West, was authorized by General Donovan to raise a company of men to assist at Diamond. Joseph asked for volunteers. He and 100 other men accompanied Colonel Hinkle to Diamond. Meanwhile, between October 10th and the 18th, the mob burned homes, whipped the saints after tying them to trees, drove off livestock, and did much damage. General Parks of the Missouri Militia saw these events unfold and alerted General Donovan and Atchison. They appealed to Governor Boggs, and the appeal was, of course, completely ignored. Guerrilla warfare raged between the two forces for a number of days. Both sides were guilty of atrocities. The Danites of Adverd felt that they had a right to the spoils of war and often helped themselves to whatever they wanted. As the warring parties converged on Diamond, the mob fortunately was driven back and fled to the adjoining counties, declaring that the Mormons had driven them out of their homes. In their rapid flight from Davies County, the mob buried their cannon at Millport in the road near the cemetery, hoping the wagon tracks would obliterate all signs of it. Unfortunately, or fortunately as it may be, a sow rooted it up and it was discovered and seized by the saints. Well, with the retreat of the mob, the prophet returned far west on October 22nd, hoping that the worst was over. Well, little did he know that the worst was yet to come. Now let me just show you my list here. This is my list of good, the bad, and the ugly. Yours may look like this or differ somewhat. We've introduced to you some new folks. Let's go over them briefly. Lyman White, he's our friend who settled in, in the Buffer County of Davies there on the Grand River. General Alexander Donovan, you ought to know him well by now. John Smith, Joseph's uncle and president of the Diamond Stake. Reynolds Cahoon, a counselor. Charles C. Rich talked briefly about his home being the only home still standing. Lorenzo Young, who alerted Brigham then to Joseph about Samson, Samson Averd's um, actions. And then you have uh, new apostles being called John Taylor, Johnny Page, Wilford Woodruff, and Willard Richards. Judge Joseph Morin, who alerted the saints to a possible disturbance at the Gallatin election. John Butler, who grabbed that nearby oak stake and sent mobsters flying through the air in defense of his right to vote. David Atchison and General Hiram Parks. Now, Hiram Parks is not a member of the church. He's the general in charge of the Missouri militia. But he knew the saints were unjustly being persecuted and wanted to help. And then you have the bad. Of course, Samson Averd, our fellow who introduced secret combinations into Far West. William Penniston, the guy who was running on a platform of driving the Saints from Gallatin. Dick Welding, the guy who pushed the bully, who pushed down a Saint while standing in line to vote and started actually the fight. And then two judges, Adam Black and Austin King. And then you have the confused George Hinkle. The good, the bad, and the confused, or the ugly. 
George is going to have further problems down the road. We'll talk about his problems in, a, in our next podcast. So this will conclude our first podcast on uh, Joseph in Far West podcast uh, dealing with the year of 1838. We'll pick up the latter part of 1838 and the year 1839 in our next podcast. I want to thank you for joining me and appreciate those of you who comment about what you've learned and, uh, and feel that this is a productive way of studying the Doctrine and Covenants. Thanks again. This Come Follow Me video series is a bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.